0: Some of you may know Christian Today from one of its podcasts, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. The magazine was started by the famous big event evangelist Billy Graham in 1956. He said at the time he wanted to plant a flag for evangelicalism, and today it's described as the flagship magazine. This means for me, as the news editor, to get back to the topic of reckoning, that in the last few years I've been very involved in reporting and writing about, hearing about, and witnessing the crisis in American evangelicalism right now. It's not all crisis. I'm also reporting and editing stories about laundromat ministries and missionary pilots saving endangered gazelles, stories about people who love Jesus and are propelled by that love to see and say the kingdom of God is near. I will be honest, it's a lot of crisis. <laughs> Shortly after I started at Christian Today, we ran an editorial saying that Donald Trump should be removed from office. We got so much hate mail. <laughs> Some applauded, of course, but there were also people who were not happy, and they expressed it in ways that would boggle your mind. One correspondent, for example, went into detail. About how he wanted the author of the editorial to do vile things to himself with pineapple. Three years later, I still don't know how a pineapple got involved. <laughs> it to do with anything. <laughs> but that's that's part of what I mean by crisis: the misuse of pineapples. Um, no, I mean I mean the quest for power, the thirst for power. The pursuit of it that goes beyond just the calculus of voting for someone who might better represent your interests. A lust that accepts no restraints of principle and is driven by polarization, fear, more fear, to sacrifice any virtue for the chance of defeating or owning the other side. By crisis, I mean the things that are conforming us and confirming us rather than transforming us to be imitators of Christ. I mean fear, self-righteousness, all the false gospels of scarcity, all the false gospels of work, all the gospels of identity. I really think a lot of it is about power, racism, sexism, Christian nationalism. they are problems of power. So let's talk about these in particular. Racism sexism, Christian nationalism. It's a good term. <laughs> there are certainly other issues in evangelicalism, but I think these will work for our purposes the a sense of what's happening right now, the, the reckoning. But also how we got here and whether we could get somewhere else. I want to talk about each of these things historically, which means I want us to set focus on contingency, the forks in the road. There are options as we move through time, If we pay close attention to these choices, I think we can sharpen the critique of evangelicalism so we will not only see what went wrong, we can think about how we might make different choices, take different forks in the future. A lot of current critiques of evangelicalism, as I see them, assume a necessary relationship rather than a contingent one between the theology or the origin or the DNA and the toxic bad thing. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's how history works, and I don't think that values the complexity of human beings and a movement that has been many things. You might, at the end, still choose to break with evangelicalism, but I'd like you to know, if you do, that people make choices. That's how this happened. And wherever you go, there will, I presume, also be people, and they will also make choices. So let's start with racism. It is, I think it's fair to say, America's original sin. Evangelicalism has been centered in America, and evangelicals have had some forks in the road with racism in particular. One of the most interesting to me is with early Pentecostalism, a stream of evangelicalism that came out of revivals at the start of the 20th century and emphasized the individual believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Pentecostals think that Christianity, Christians are partially living in the kingdom to come right now. And the new reality, the reality of redemption and healing and wholeness is coming in you and through you as you were empowered by the Holy Spirit. This theology creates opportunities for people to transform, gives people the chance to break things, break old ways, old communities, dysfunctional families, Addiction histories, destruction, destructive habits, more to the point of our story, cultural realities. For some evangelicals in this tradition, they have broken from their own racist history. They've come to understand race and reject the racial hierarchies that they have been taught. They were empowered, as they understood by the Holy Spirit, to live in open defiance of white supremacy. I think of William B. Holt as an example of this. We don't know a lot about him as a historical person, but he was born in Texas in 1890, right as the state started rolling back the civil rights black people had won during Reconstruction. There were new laws that applied only to black people. This is when segregation was instituted by law and white people started to enforce the racial hierarchies through mob violence with lynching. This was the world that Holt came from, the world that he accepted, but then he got the Holy Spirit as he understood it. In Southern California in 1914, And he changed his views on race to such an extent that he went to work for a black preacher named Charles H. Mason. Holt was Mason's assistant, which offended and confounded white people to see a white person working as an assistant for a black person. It confounded people so much, in fact, that the forerunner of the FBI investigated. They opened a file... They investigated. What, who is this person? What is he doing? Someone got the idea that Holt must be a spy <coughs> for the Germans. A Christian compelled by the gospel to see black people as equal was considered unthinkable. He must be a German spy trying to stir up black people to resist the draft for World War I. Some of the only things we know about it is actually from his FBI file, including this photo. Wasn't a (laughs) spy, he was just a Christian. More broadly, though, white evangelicals coming out of Pentecostal revivals didn't do this. He's the exception. Instead, they either A, accepted segregation was good, embracing what their culture said about segregation and racial superiority. B, they decided the issue wasn't important when compared with spiritual things. Or C, they rejected racial hierarchies and white supremacy for themselves. Personally, but they didn't think they could do anything about it practically, and they accepted it as the reality that we just have to live with. I think all three of these are a problem: embracing racism, diminishing it as not spiritually important, and accepting it as you know what are you going to do. But I think the third move may be the most likely, historically, to take white evangelicals down this particular fork in the racism path. So let's talk about this for one minute by looking at one of the first editors of the magazine Where I Was Work, Carl Henry. Carl Henry wrote wrote in the first draft of his autobiography that he wanted to take, he wanted the magazine to address the race problem right away. They started in October 1956, and he said maybe they should publish something for the Christmas issue. They didn't. And actually there's some evidence that Henry is remembering things in an especially favorable light, and he wasn't as adamant on this issue as he remembered. The archives show the race problem, as they called it, came up not when considering a Christmas issue, but in discussing whether or not to include a prominent Christian who was an outspoken advocate for segregation. This pastor said racial integration was, integration was evil, And though he technically believed the races were equal, but just needed to be separate, he also, you know, publicly defended the use of the N-word. As wrong as this seems, and as rude as this seems to Carl Henry, the Southern pastor was well-known, well-liked, and a friend to a lot of people. So they gave him the benefit of the doubt. Henry decided he might disagree, but friends could disagree. So they set up a magazine that planted the flag for evangelicalism, holding it together as this conversation in a way that made space for the many people who embraced segregation and white supremacy. Friends could disagree. Note how white the words friends got there. That's a choice. Henry later came to terms with the fact that he was wrong. He had made evangelicalism safe for segregation and safe for racism. But could this have gone a different way? I think so. Henry could have been more like Holt, right? What would have had to have happened? Branch in the timeline. The editor of Christianity Today would need to be more convinced that being transformed into the image of Christ meant breaking some cultural patterns, breaking racism he would have needed to be more suspicious of his friends and his friends' friends. He also needed different friends. If Carl Henry had trusted a black Christian to speak into his life and tell him about the reality of segregation, I think it would
1: have been different.
0: His imagination could have been different, and the infrastructure he was building could have been different. So is that true, then, to go to our second topic, sexism? When it comes to sexism, you really can't say, oh, I wish these evangelical leaders had just known some women. (laughs) They were (laughs) around. But you do, again, get issues of trust, and who gets to speak into what. There's been a lot written on evangelicals and toxic masculinity, militant masculinity, in the last few years, and if you're interested in the subject, I would highly recommend my friend Kristen Dumais' book *Jesus and John Wayne*. But let me tonight focus on one particular fork in evangelical road: of gender. In the life of the theologian Wayne Grudem, Grudem <laughs> is the author of a very widely used textbook, *Systematic Theology*. He oversaw the translation of the English Standard Version of the Bible. And most importantly, for our purposes, he took a leading role in the development of the idea of complementarianism. Not compliments like, you look nice today, but compliments like, you fit over here, and by implications, not over here. Complementarianism is the idea that men and women are equal, but different biologically, and designed for different roles in church and society. Men should be in charge, women should not. Preaching and teaching in church, in particular, off limits. Also, leadership in the home and more often than not in society, though the internal divisions about whether you can elect a woman to be vice president or congresswoman get pretty bold. But different biology, different gender, complementary roles. There's some argument that this is the traditional Christian view of gender, just more clearly articulated and with this new name that they invented. But the historical record doesn't really support it being the idea unless you edit a lot. There were women who preached in the early church, women in the Middle Ages, women in the Reformation, and certainly women in evangelicalism, some of whom I've already mentioned. But then there are conservative periods where cultural ideas of respectability and order come to seem to be very important, and there's a kind of backlash, which happened in the US in the 1980s and 1990s, among other periods, this new concern about rules, headship, submission. Consider Grudem's own account of complementarianism. It's not, as the way he tells the story, that he was just reading the Bible And it was super clear, so he wrote it down. What he says is there were evangelical feminists. And that was upsetting. He said they were right about some things, abuse and things like that, but they were also disrupting God's given gender order. So he and his friend John Piper developed this argument for technical gender equality with clear roles. I regret to inform you they did not call it separate but equal. Nor, unfortunately, did they give much more than lip service addressing the abuses that they said the feminists were right about, including the many times women were told they were supposed to submit to physical abuse. Rudim and Piper just kind of hand waved. And I try not to think about that for too long. But the point I want you to see here is that this is a backlash prompted by fear of disorder concerns about the correct hierarchies of power, and then the question for us is, did Grudem have to take this fork in the road? He doesn't see it as a choice. He thinks he's just being faithful to the Bible, responding to the world as it changes, speaking the truth where it's called for. Now, I would dispute that's what the Bible says, but as a historian I want to show you that Grudem could have responded differently to the situation where women feminists spoke up, there was another choice. I know this because Bruno himself points it out in the story about his own marriage and the time he was personally changed by marriage counseling. He made all the decisions in the family, as you would expect, he's the head, the boss, until his wife insisted that they go to counseling. She said he had taken away her voice. She was trying to get him to see that his decisions hadn't been good for her. She meant this literally, physically. She has a medical condition that makes wet weather and cold winter very hard. Yet he chose, without listening to her, and it seemed without thinking about what it would mean, to live outside Chicago near Lake Michigan, where the weather is very wet and cold. He went to a prominent evangelical seminary. So they're going to counsel him. The counselor is a woman. And Grudem gets it. He here's what she has to say. Here's what his wife has to say. And he changes. He makes a different choice, apologizes, leaves the seminary that's very good for his career, and grows to a little-known, not-prestigious school in the Southwest, which was better for his wife. In his personal life, Grudem see how not listening to a woman was a problem, but he doesn't ever apply that more generally. Still arguing that the most important problem with regards to men and women in the world today is women not submitting, the manliness of the man, the authority of males not being beyond question, clearly established. Then, in the translation of the English standard version of the Bible, he and other scholars make a number of questionable choices in the name of opposing gender-neutral transition translations. Making sure the scripture said something closer to what they wanted it, than the fair reading of the manuscript would really support. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but just to name a few, they change a word that's normally translated man to be manhood, which is an abstraction. They render the word and for poi or people as men, but only sometimes. They make it the singular for children, children plural, singular son, as everyone knows. And they insist that Paul's address to the Adelphoi, which can mean siblings or perhaps with context clues, family of believers, that it can only legitimately be translated as brothers. If you want to know more about this, I suggest Mark Strauss, why the English Standard Bible should not become the Standard English Bible. My point is it could have been different. Even for the champion of complementarianism, I think, what would have made it different? A little more listening, some women on the translation team, a better sense of history, more tolerance for ambiguity and feelings of disorder, less urgency to make everything, including scripture, clear, even clearer than it actually is, as if the evangelical trust in the text couldn't extend the point of trusting the difficulties. There's a temptation to haul out the fix-it machine pretty quick. We could come up with some other lessons, some other ways Grudem could have made a different choice, but at this point I have to remind myself it's important to remember, I think, that I'm not really talking about Grudem but myself. Am I listening to people who've been silenced? Am I cautious about over-interpreting cultural change? Am I willing to accept that my feelings of disorder or disruption or especially loss of power might not be about the Bible, but my own anxiety? This brings us to the third topic, which I said at the beginning would be Christian nationalism. And with your permission, I'd like to narrow that down a little bit. I can say broadly that evangelicalism has a problem with too closely connecting the American projects and America's position and prestige in the world with the kingdom of God and the work of God in the world, letting the nation take the place of the church. I think evangelicalism has also gotten too apocalyptic and has been too quick to see apocalypse everywhere. Every election is important, every breaking news alert, an existential crisis, every new cultural battle, a battle royale. This has been a bad way to love our neighbors. This has not helped us proclaim that God is healing all things, restoring all things, bringing new things, new life to all things. But in the time I have, I wanna go past the nationalism and past the apocalyptic politics to the issue of resentment. The politics that are motivated by resentment, fueled by the feeling of being mistreated, disrespected, slighted. That's the choice we've made so often as evangelicals that concerns me the most. Sometimes when people give an account of the history of evangelicals in politics, they're really talking about and want to talk about how white evangelicals were formed as a block of voters and why that block of voters became so closely linked with the Republicans the GOP, God's own party. (laughs) I think that's a good question. There's some reasons to think that evangelicals following Jesus should have been more left-wing, concerned about social safety nets and opposed to war. And also that has happened. That does happen. I recommend this book a lot, David Schwartz, The Moral Minority, which is the best history of this alternative path. And many people have also read about how evangelicals ended up voting predominantly for Republicans. The best, I think, is by Daniel Williams, who is a professor at West Georgia. But it's not the conservatism that's the crisis for me, though my own evangelicalism doesn't push me in that direction. The crisis I see is a conservatism built from resentment, built on antagonism, irritation, and ill-will. Let me give one concrete example. The pro-life movement before the Supreme Court decision in 1973, before Roe v. Wade, saw itself as closest to the anti-war movements and the movement opposing nuclear weapons. They thought contemporary society devalued human life. The movement was a critique of capitalism, consumerism in particular, science without moral limits, technology, that never accepted no as an answer. That's what the pro-life movement was about. There actually weren't a lot of evangelicals in the movement at the time. It was mostly liberal New Deal Catholics, some mainline Protestants, and a few evangelicals, generally ones who looked to the civil rights movement as a moral example. Then the Supreme Court handed down this decision, and some evangelicals discovered kind of suddenly a new reason to be pro-life. They said, How dare they? It was the disrespect of the judges, the idea of justices who aren't listening to us and just impose their views on America that galvanized Jerry Falwell's political push. Sorry, that's the definition of Christian nationalism, which I meant to give you earlier. That galvanized Jerry Falwell's political push. to get evangelicals in his organization, which was called the Moral Majority, to kick off the religious right. For Falwell, the issue of sanctity of life was not understood as adjacent to the problems of poverty, racism, consumerism, war. Instead, it was part of how, um, for him, it was next to feminism, divorce, Pornography it was an issue of disorder, and disorder understood especially as those people over there with the gall to tell us what to do. Now, for a lot of people I know, it doesn't matter why someone's pro-life. If you think, if you think these people are just taking away your basic rights, then their motivation probably doesn't matter. I get that. And if you think the pro-life movement is about saving human beings. Maybe you don't care about why people join. That also makes sense. But it does make a difference, doesn't it? To the shape of the movement. If the movement is about, to the shape of the movement and the conversation and the subsequent choices, if evangelicals are making this choice out of resentment or concern, shaking a fist or offering a hand. You make this choice once, twice, three times, enough times, and you get a politics of spite, a politics that's more interested in owning, controlling, and trashing, not constructive solutions and coming together. I think that's what happened. That's the contingency that leads to the misuse of (laughs) pineapples. But it could have been different, and I think it could be again, The story of evangelicals doesn't just arc inevitably. Little seems to me to be inevitable. We're not doomed to resentment, which means I think evangelicalism could be different. Now, maybe you want to thumbs down like a Roman emperor. Okay. Or maybe you want to eject and just get out of there, get away from what seems like a burning wreck. I really don't think anyone can fault you. I won't fault you. But I will say that I don't think rejecting evangelicalism is the same as reckoning with it. That can be a way to just claim that you're not implicated in the bad choices and weren't also part of or a product of what happens. A lot of people seem to me like what they really want is an all-historical Christianity that allows them to be insulated (coughs) from any responsibility from the messiness of people before us, and the work of taking, taking it as our own. So if you reject evangelicalism and choose to identify with something else, fine. But I urge you not to not reckon with whatever the history of that something else is, its past and implications. For me, I find that I'm still drawn to this tradition, Still part of this movement for personal historical reasons. And also because this conversation, this imagination, still circles and centers on the resurrection. There's still that question that I find orients my own thinking and connects to the larger conversation organized as evangelical Jesus died and rose again. What should I do today, tomorrow, Tuesday? We've answered that question wrong, I think, with racism, sexism, and Christian nationalism. We've been wrong to worry so much about order, but that's still the question I think we're asking, and that's the question that seems to be most important to ask. And then I'm also always reminded of the power evangelicalism has had to kick open doors top of hierarchies, Reject religious power structures and say no. Everyone can read the Bible. Everyone has access to God. Anyone can, on the authority of their own experience, proclaim the good news. Jesus comes to you personally and powerful. That's real. The power to upset the powers that be is real. I think back to William Holt, moved by the Holy Spirit to betray racism so profoundly that people thought he must be betraying America itself. John Granada, keeping everyone in the camp up until midnight, shouted glory. And the women, Harriet Livermore and others, who went and preached the word a world that did not accept women as equals. And the child who would not be called a poor thing. God is my Father, Christ my brother, I'm rich in the blood of the Lamb. That's what I want to say, too. I want to claim it, reclaim it, revive it. What's more evangelical than wanting a revival? <laughs> so I would say, Lord, I know we've been down to the crossroads and gone the wrong way, but evangelicals have also been People of repentance, a people open to change, a people who believe in openness necessary for everyone to have access to God. And I know the Holy Spirit can meet us at the next intersection, the next choice, the next time we get to consider grabbing on the power or letting it go to try to preserve hierarchies or overthrow them. We can sing the old camp song, Provide Us Again. Thank you.
2: So we have some time for Q and A. So if you have a question for Daniel, I've got a few back here on the Zoom chat. Um, but just ask away. you don't need a microphone. Um, so yeah, go for it. How would you define within like Christianity the difference between evangelicals and
1: non-evangelicals versus? other ways
0: that people would define themselves in research. um <clears> theoretically <throat> the simplest way to define between mainline Protestants and evangelicals. mainline tend to have more structure and more tradition uh, there are bishops you know stuff like that that's not a, that's not a perfect way to do it um, but yeah, as I talked about, evangelicals being this like pretty loose movement and pretty flowing movement. It changes a lot over time, so there's never a moment where you just say these are evangelical. There's never any person with the authority to say these people are evangelical. So that means it gets debated a lot. But um, yeah, historically, it's been the more open-ended. Um, let's see how we go movement that has a simpler
1: uh, center. Less destruction. Your trust gets a little tricky
0: when you say followers of Jesus. One thing that evangelicals have so often done is say, I don't know if I'm an evangelical, just a follower of Jesus. That's like 80% of the time that you're an evangelical.
1: <laughs> 20% of the time it'd be something else. Um, on social media, a lot I hear um, a lot of posts about
0: people using the term expendable. Yeah. you could talk a little bit like about what you studied that and who that would be. Yeah. So expendable is a relatively new group of people and um, organized also as a conversation of people who. Um, Grown up as evangelical typically and rejected it. And so defined themselves as ex-evangelical. That tends to mean that that um, not being evangelical is really the most important part of their religious identity. Right? There's a bunch of people that stopped being evangelical and now they're just right? You wouldn't call that person an ex-evangelical. But if someone's like, I don't know where I am, but I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how terrible stuff was in my childhood and connecting with other people who are having to go through that same kind of process. Um, that tends to be an exponential. Uh, a few years ago, there was, a, there was a different movement where people were doing a similar thing called Virgin Christians. They tended to be, I don't like that stuff, but I'm going to take some of it and do creative other stuff. <laughs> Um, so these these things change fairly rapidly with social media I think the term existential is only a few years old um, if you ask me next year it might mean something different but yeah there's a community organized specifically around um, rejecting toxic art, the toxic things that they experience often really personally experience um, and I mean I think that the difference between what I'm saying and what they're saying is it's toxic because it's toxic. Get rid of all of it,
1: burn it down, empty the cubes. Where I'm saying, no, oh, it's definitely toxic. There's lots of bad stuff. I do think there's a uh, redeemable. We often a little bit with uh, deconstructivism. And I was wondering yeah. if you could maybe see that a little bit, like, the way I understand it, a lot of people kind of mean that they want to reconstruct
0: their faith mm-hmm. as opposed to just deconstructing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'll just yes. yeah. So so I think from what I can tell that people who've gone through the process of reconstructing their faith tend to identify with something else and no longer describe themselves as like expensive. I don't want to imply that I think they'll be stuck there forever. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who's a Unitarian Universalist minister, a very liberal denomination. And I asked him what's the hardest part of being a Unitarian Universalist minister. And he said, all the people who only want to talk about the stuff they don't like that they came from. And I just work really hard so that one day they'll really, they'll just be like, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, not, a oh, Baptists. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's that same like, deconstruction, reconstruction process. Uh, Deconstruction started as a philosophical word um, associated with Jacques Derrida, and the idea was about Plato. It has nothing to do with that over here. (laughs) Over here, it really means just processing and taking apart your childhood, and the experiences you've been through, and trying to think about, yeah, why did it go wrong? And did it go wrong because, you know, because I was a bad kid? Did it go wrong because the pastor who came to my church when I was 10 was terrible? Or, you know, is the theology so corrupt that it always leads to abuses of power? I think that's the process for Um, I don't see a huge difference between critical historical thinking
1: <laughs>
0: and deconstruction,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but a critical historical thinking is a little broader. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The racism I'm talking about didn't happen to me. Right but I think we'd still deconstruct it and you know, take it apart think about how it happens.
1: Yeah. Um, Moving forward, like I feel like yeah. evangelicalism has been so politicized yeah. at this point that, like, that is the only conversation we Yeah. And I don't, as I used like, to like, Forward, how like foresee kind of reclaiming it, and like, I guess the education
0: wow. Yeah. So it's especially just to, to, to say, even more than you suggested, <laughs> it's become a political term in part because it gets used in polls all the time. And so the primary meaning as it's come up in polls and as it's used in public is, are you a white person who identifies with these kind of political projects? And really weird and interesting and uh, terrible, but interesting, if you don't get emotional about it, thing that has happened recently is uh, a lot of new people have been identifying in polls as as evangelical. They're not churchgoers, don't believe in Jesus, uh, some of them are Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, which is interesting to be a Muslim evangelical. Um, but they're specifically identifying as part of a political project, right? They they mean I support Trump and I think immigration is a problem and other stuff like that. So that's 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 a real thing. Um, so if it's worth reclaiming, what do we do about it? Uh, one, give talks in little rooms to convince people. <laughs> you can use the word. No one's in charge of it. The pollsters aren't in charge. You can say, I'm evangelical. You can say, why evangelicals voted for Donald Trump 81%? That's not 100%. That other group is one of the largest religious groups in the United States. It's more, more than Mormons, more than Jews. Evangelicals who voted for Hillary is a very sizable group of people. Most of whom were like, oh, I don't know how to use that word anymore. Um, so that's part of it. Another part of it is, like, maybe it's not the word that matters. There's still ways to claim the history or pieces of the history that I think could be valuable. I think that could be valuable, you know, not even just to you personally, right? That you're not in and all historical faith. There are people who were doing the stuff before. Yeah, there are people who went through the civil war. Yeah, it's bad now. They had a civil war. Um, yeah, there are people who kept the faith. I think that history can be can be an encouraging thing and a worthwhile thing, even as we process the the, the critical stuff. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is going back to imagination and infrastructure. Part of the way to claim a word like evangelicalism or to redeem a tradition like evangelicalism is to build institutions, to build conversations that are healthier conversations, to build conversations and networks that shape our imagination in ways that aren't racist or sexist so, or um so it ranges from go off and just use the word indiscriminately to, you know, work in institutions and buildings.
2: There's one here on Zoom. Yeah. There's a lot of freighted words in here. Just yeah. want to like warn you.
0: I I am like 40% that this is just Derek asking a tough
2: question. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not my. Uh, so I'm just going to read it. Go for it. Please address the idea that Christendom, first freighted word is no longer the prevailing moral order and has now been replaced by moral relativism and theory. Further, quote, evangelical has been highly politicized, which you've addressed, as a term that correlates conservative right-wing activism. Christians have arguably lost the ability to define themselves, and as a result have lost a large percentage of the populace who are turned off by the political affiliation of Christianity, portrayed by popular culture, Ultimately, and here's the question. What does the future of American Christianity look like in a post-Christendom world? Yeah.
1: Wow. <laughs> um, it's an elite
2: crowd on Zoom.
1: Uh, there's
0: a very traditional, um, significant fig- figure... In the historiography of evangelicalism, the guy that sort of made this a field to study the history of evangelicalism, named Mark Knoll. Uh, He was at Beaton for many years, and I studied with him just a little bit at Notre Dame. And he would say, America has never been Christian, but it could be.
1: (laughs) We could try.
0: Yeah, I I don't think the... I don't think the historical account of America as having been Christian works, Um, so I don't don't accept that. Um, I can get into why. We can talk about specifics. We can talk about numbers of people that were actually Christian. We can talk about what it would mean for a nation to be Christian. Um, But let me just say, yeah, there's a bunch of historical research on that. There were Christians, for sure, but was it a Christian nation? That's not a great account of, of what happens. Um, and then secondly, I would say that, um, the, the framing of that question that way involves a lot of concerns about disorder. What do we do in the confusion of there being a bunch of different people? What do we do when not everyone thinks like I do? What do we do when... People don't know what my religious tradition means when I say the name. Um,
1: I don't find that thing to be afraid. Just explain it.
0: Find it. Recruit people. Like If people are being, being given a religious identity that turned out to be a political identity that doesn't heal their souls, that doesn't help them love their neighbor, that doesn't help them love Jesus, then go do those things. Like, I don't, yeah. But I do think, I do think there's this tendency, right, to see the the present, see the moment we live in as the most disordered and chaotic and, and that's always how people feel. And if we can all just be a little calmer, hold our anxiety a little bit better, and not try and fix it, people are going to disagree with you. People are going to
2: misunderstand you. People are going to misunderstand your faith. I think that's just being human, and we could all be okay with it. Maybe one more before we close.
1: Yeah.
0: Someone volunteer, somebody else has a question.
1: Yeah, go for it. I
0: was thinking that
1: you talked a little bit about like, no. the political yeah. uh, identity and the' kind of on the flip side the way any types of deconstruction can look like kind of like, I kind sure. of all that. How do you think it's about to to how do you think about like, them, like, you talked about like kind of pulling apart of theology like, the problematic How do you think about finding or holding space for that? And, like, have like an organization, church, or a religious How do you do that in space to people into that conversation? So, there's not yeah. necessarily how this time, like, an identifying, like, an easy way to identify that in space, or how do you go about building some kind of identity that sits somewhere in between those two?
0: I think it has happened for me in the other direction. It's not that I've invented an identity that allows people to come into the middle or come into conversation. It's, it's rather that I've dealt with people and had interactions with people and been open and invited people into this conversation. Um, and that has created, right? It's the conversation first. And then out of the conversation comes a community, and then that community can be an identity. Now it may be helpful to have that identity, that sort of flag for people that like, it's an option. You can try this. You know, sometimes when I'm teaching the history of evangelicals, I'll talk to students about left-wing Christians, and they're just like, that's not, "That's not a thing." They're like, "No, they existed." I mean, you might think they're wrong. Like, that's fine. That's mm-hmm. a plausible argument. But like, they're real. They're over there. And they wrote It's <laughs> yeah, but I, I think the, I mean, the primary work is about being appropriately critical, right? It's of actually reckoning with the stuff that, that I think we need to take responsibility for, you know? And I'm very active in this work, both talking about the bad history of Christianity today. You know, I can tell you more about how racist they were, I can tell you more about mistakes they made. Also in reporting, in my job in recording, I spent a lot of time talking about sexual abuse. Um, I wrote I wrote a very long report about sexual harassment at Christian today, where I work. I think the main work is just self-criticism and thoroughgoing historical assessment. Um, but then there's this other work, which is of Jesus. On your neighbor, and hold open this access to people, even the people who are freaked out all the time. I think this, um, this idea of democracy and evangelicalism has become really important to me as a way of respecting um, people's consciousness, of giving people freedom to disagree, of holding space for those disagreements, and really encouraging them and reminding them of the our commitment to open access. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you can tell me what God's doing in your life. You can be
1: a part of this, or you can disagree.